recorded on Monday, November 11, 2013, in St. Louis, Missouri. This Agile Life, episode 24. I know. Welcome to This Agile Life, a podcast about what it's like to be agile in the real world. Obviously, I am not John Sextro. This is Jason Tice, and I'm filling in for John tonight, and I'm here with some co-hosts, Amos King, Craig Buchek, and Nate Mackey. So we kind of got the band back together again, and we are actually recording face-to-face tonight in St. Louis, Missouri. And so actually, I'd like to pass it around to our, my co-host this evening and have him kind of give a shout-out and say what's up. How about we start with Amos? Hey, Tice. It's been a long time since we've been able to be on here together, which has probably kept both of us a little more sane than we normally are. Um, so I'm, I'm pretty excited to be here face-to-face and be able to, to sit and talk and maybe argue with you again, but... I, I I hear from the last couple of podcasts that we agree a lot more than what we used to. Oh my god! I think Amos, we actually always did agree. It just it never came out in conversation. I didn't have a standardized document to let you know that I had the same alignment as you. <laughs> okay, and Craig, moving on, Craig, what's up? Uh, started a new job a couple months ago. Uh, working from home. Uh, love that. Uh, also hate that. Uh, love working from home. Uh, don't like that I don't get to interact with people face to face. Craig, have you been practicing us today? Yes. Uh, <laughs> yes. You know, Toastmasters can fix that. I know. It's going to be Craig's pick this evening. That, really? that, that same is trying to get rid of I know. Yeah, I, I'm trying to remove the words I know from my vocabulary. Well, in the interest of full disclosure and... In the spirit of Agile, we waited till the last responsible moment to get ready for the Sydney's podcast. So when we opened the cabinet, we found out we only have three mics. And so I have to share with the one and only Nate Mackey. So, Nate. Hi, this is Nate Mackey. I'm glad to be here. It's been a long time, uh, partially because of my own busyness and just not being able to, to uh, get things together with John. But I think the, the last time, I, it was just me and John. So um, it's good to have a, a big group back and see how it goes. Let the fights begin. Let the fights begin and the mic sharing. And who knows how the and, and John will share. We'll sync up with him. He's going to do post-production for us. And we'll make sure he has lots of audio leveling to um, deal with. So Okay. Awesome. Thank <laughs> okay. you, Amos. Maybe we can uh, have John just put himself in the podcast like he oh, was yeah. actually here. Really? <laughs> like Jabba the Hutt in episode one? Yeah. <laughs> So, so the first topic we, we thought we would throw out there tonight, of course, decided at the last responsible moment was I think Amos and I need to have a reconciliation about no estimates. And the way I thought that we would do that when it was in my mind today was to talk about some ideas for, as an architect, I was thinking about having a standardized metrics, having standardized metrics for teams that if you're in an organization with multiple development teams, all of, the, all of your teams would track those metrics. And the organization would provide you know, training so folks understand how to track them, what the, val- what the value of the metrics are, what the trends are, and maybe even to the point where the organization invests in having tools set up that teams can use for their benefit so every team doesn't have to set that up individually. And so some would say that's you know, a big enterprise approach. Um, I kind of want to get some feedback on, I guess, what everyone thinks about that as a way to kind of promote teams towards a... I guess a, a collection of standard metrics that are there for a specific reason. So I, I want to jump in and say that I, I don't think it's necessarily a bad idea to, to standardize on some metrics. 
uh, I think the team should be able to go above and beyond that. But my only fear is that um, whenever you put, whenever you have standard metrics, um, you you take a number from one team and a number from another team, and there's a tendency to assume that they're the same, even though they're not across multiple teams. And I don't think that management would do it on purpose, but I think the human mind says, "Look, I've got I've got this number and this number. They should always be really close, or that team's not performing." And and not even that they would do that like openly say that team's not performing, but during that manager's review, they in the back of their mind have this. Well, his team's metrics are always slightly lower than everybody else's. So so I've heard a solution to that, and that solution is one team's metrics are measured in apples, and another team's metrics are measured in oranges. Like like put that on the and dashboard. Yeah, there. and you can't compare apples to oranges. <laughs> so, yeah, you can. They're both fruits. Oh. Okay. Well, <laughs> one thing I mentioned in the onset was, and something I know that that I've been asked a lot of questions about lately, and it kind of comes from you know my revelation about no estimates, and that is that what does it really mean to track cycle time? And I think we're all smart enough to say that you know every team is different with different people, different tech stacks. So you're not going to have the same cycle time. But what's important is to say, how do you measure cycle time? What's what is part of that measurement and what is not? And then how do you look for trends and what do the trends mean? And I think beyond that, if you really had a board of times where you said average, the average cycle time this team needs to complete a story is so much. And is that trending upwards or downwards? And do you have a reason for which those trends are justified? So there's some training involved with the people that are going to be looking at these metrics across teams is what you're saying, that they need to know that it's not about an individual data point, but it's about a trend that a team is doing. And you have to trust that the people who are going to be looking at them and maybe making decisions about those teams understand how to use the metrics properly. Yeah, I I think that's the key point, Nate. And that is where I've seen a lot of folks that they, especially with cycle time and the whole no estimates kind of trend that's come out is people, a lot of folks think they have cycle time down and either they're just simply measuring the time and, they're, and they don't have enough d- data to capture a trend, but there is a learning gap that needs to be solved. I, I can see that. So my problem with the standard metric is that we've already said that it's different for every team. And now we're talking about the ability to predict what the team can do based off of this so that we can get outside of having estimation meetings because... Nobody sells a customer ten thousand dollars worth of estimations. They, they at the at the end of the day, they have no no value outside of planning. Um, so if every team is already different and one metric doesn't really work for a team, can they change that? Is this just a starting metric, or is it really like this is the metric we collect? You can collect more yourself, but this is what we collect. And the other problem that I have is metrics. I feel like are for the team themselves to find the ways that they can improve. And if it's across the board, is that going to give them the ability to improve themselves? Is it, is it or are they just going to say, oh, that's just something that we give to the manager? Like, I'm worried about what the team psyche is on that. So Nate is, well, actually, Amos, in, in your opinion, then when does, because you mentioned the metrics are for the team. And it's funny, I see, I see value for the team, but I also see a lot of value for the business. So if you're doing development and you want to track risk, the business, in my opinion, should have awareness that, you know, we have a team that's struggling. Maybe they need support. And, you know, metrics can serve as a source of truth or as a data point to say that a change needs to be made to address that. Does that fit into your viewpoint? Uh, I Yeah, I, I 
I completely get the idea behind going to a standardization so that we can see at a top level, like when a team might need a little extra, but you also can't just look at a number. You need to look at a, at a trend. It's a trend. It's, right? it's all about trends. Because, because if one team number is a hundred and the other team number is 50 and they're tracking the same thing, but because they're different teams, they're really not. So if it's consistently lower and I'm wondering if there is something that this other team that's getting 50 should be tracking instead. Like I'm, I'm worried about what standard metric you would pick in order to get the most benefit for that team in order to find out where the weak points are, where they need their help is and and what value does that metric have for that team? Because ultimately in order to get the, the prediction and the ability to let the metrics help you move forward, you need to know what to change because of those metrics. And I don't want them to be too complicated. I, I'm okay with with a standard starting metric. I just think it should be really simple. Like, like you said, cycle time. What if it's just how many how many stories get done in this amount of time on it? So there's only a start and finished, and that's the only thing that you have to click. So the, the thing I've always struggled with with standardization is that it... It, it makes you stop thinking about something. It makes you feel like, okay, that's set and figured out, and so I don't have to worry about it anymore. And that that kind of goes along with what you were saying, Amos, about um, the improvement. So if, you're, if, if you know these are the metrics we have to gather because that's what everybody's supposed to gather and report on, then that's what you're going to do, and then you're not really going to think as much about how do we use metrics to get better. Possibly, right? You know, or, or should I look for a different metric? Right. They've exactly. already told me that this is the thing I should be collecting, and this company's been doing this for five years. They probably know what they're talking about, right? And so the you know the same goes for all of the all of the things you would then have to standardize. As much as I like the idea of a team spins up and immediately they've got a tool that's going to gather the metrics they need and uh, and the metrics that they're supposed to start working with, and they, they don't even have to think about it. There's a lot of appeal there, but it, may, it, it makes them stop thinking about how to solve their problems with metrics and just think about using the tool and, and the stuff that's there because that's what's provided. And the same for the tool. I mean, you know, centralizing on a tool is, to me, always a, a bad plan because no one's ever going to try to find a better tool. And not everybody's going to be happy with the tool. Right. Like, they're just going to complain about it, but everybody's going to think they're <laughs> powerless to do anything about it. And so they're just going to be, you're just going to settle. At what point do you switch to a new tool? Who, who's going to get that started? Who's going to initiate it? Who's going to change over and rewrite all the starting scripts? And, you know, you have to start thinking about all those things. And all of that creates a huge barrier to even moving off the tool ever. So is there a way to, to find a tool that's just for the metrics well, and doesn't do much? I, I like, think, like, I like think e- there's an opposite problem. Like Ty, Ty says cycle time. And that's, that's, I think, good, and and especially if you start getting the cycle time where it's broken down between columns on your Kanban board or whatever. But that makes that tool do a lot, and and even harder to replace, and even more likely for people to say, "Oh, it's doing a bunch," and I'm spending a lot of time on collecting these metrics. And your value stream map, just like no estimations, if I'm spending four hours a week collecting metrics, is it worth it? So what what is the minimal set of metrics? That, that we could even possibly standardize on and what types of tools get us. The, the other that. problem is that you don't collect any metrics until you 
until you should have time you needed to. <laughs> you know, you can't you can't get a trend for the past three weeks if you didn't collect any metrics, and you don't want just the trend for today. So I, I think the idea to have a starting point is good. In fact, the whole uh, you know when you start an agile team, the whole set of agile practices. Which ones should we start with? Th- this makes me like I've really wanted to have like an agile starter kit. Yeah, like hey, here are. Here are three practices. Start with start these. Out, retro, I think, is number one. Yes. Like, start having retros, because those will help you find what practices you need. Collect some kind of metric. You're well, talking well, about standardizing. I would just my, like a My standard metric. metric now for retros is happiness. How happy are you at your job right now? And compare uh, that and, across weeks. Right. And we had, you know, like a drop of a whole point. You know, from one to ten, we had a drop of a whole point. And I'm like, if it's still down next week, we're going to talk about this. You know, that's saying something's happening. Well, and, and the other thing that we've started to do um, here is in order to get the teams to collect something so that they're not just, like you said, not collecting anything until it's too late and they need it, uh, we've started having a monthly, what we're, we're calling ops review meeting, where everybody, every team sends a representative who sits down and talks through um, the metrics that they're gathering um, and they're required only to collect one in regards to uh, productivity, so velocity or cycle time or whatever you want it, or number of stories, whatever it is, and then the other in regards to quality. So you just have to have a metric, and you can choose what you want it to be, but it just has to be in that category. So you're giving them, like, topic areas. Yes. That is, I think that's better than a standard metric. Like, right. This is what you have and, to collect. And, and then we did that for about four months, and then we started <clears> saying, okay, now don't just come and report your metric. Talk, Come with a problem that you solved or an improvement that you made where you use metrics to validate or show that you needed the improvement. So we're, we're now asking them not just to report, hey, we're, look at us, we're doing metrics, but actually, are you using the metrics to do something? Are you using them to actually get better? So, so here's sort of what I heard, that you have a toolbox of metrics that they can choose from. Yes. So I like that. A standard toolbox suggested you start with these, but you know, if your team feels that they need something different, they choose a different set of tools. Now, the side effect, interestingly enough, has been that um, teams have started to all use the same tool <laughs> and start gathering the same metric because they see other people using it and getting value out of it and, and trying it out. Although we've also had the situation where a team started using one and being just like another team and then realized, you know, that's not working that well for us, and they switched over to something else. So, mm-hmm. so uh, can you tell me what the tool and the main metric collected? Like, what's the most popular tool and most popular metric among all the teams? Okay, with if that's not giving away that's right. trade secrets. Less marketing <laughs> there. Um, it's, uh, no, Mingle is the most popular right now. ThoughtWorks Mingle product. Okay. product. Um, which is a fairly expensive product. It's not free at all. Um, and, and I'm not totally sure why, except that teams have been able to get what they need out of it. The problem with Mingle that most of our teams really buck against is that Mingle does not... Um, does not allow for stories that are finished in less than a day. It, it, <laughs> it assumes a minimum okay. one oh day my. increment. Now you have you can put in some that, things that to make it work. <laughs> you you can put in your own stuff. It's very very customizable. That's probably most of the reason can you change why it days to like apples. Uh, <laughs> but you can. But just with the built in stuff, the built in reports and things, they all really want you know everything measured in days. Hmm. I, I can. 
I can see what it's nice well, to be able to put a report together based on right and the, uh, part of time. There is a different viewpoint on that. So specifically for the tracking he, he cycle didn't say time which metric in days, people were collecting. I well, asked no, no, two no, no, questions, Tice. No, but to set the record correct, <laughs> and in the defense of our friends at ThoughtWorks, their 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 simplification of the cycle time model to track in days makes a lot of sense. Mm. Working with another tool, which I believe is known as Vendor Y on this year's State of Agile survey from version one, it's not identified. Um, they use a down to the second model for cycle time, which then means you need to normalize your cycle time to account for, you know, time off, you know, the evening, because I assume if you're not a 24 seven shop, the cycle time is running. If someone pulls a card at four o'clock in the afternoon and it gets done at eight in the morning, it probably wasn't active. So. So if you yeah. do, if you're using that tool, you have to invest in building a model to normalize the data. If you use if you use the simple cycle time model, you don't have to do that. It makes a lot of sense. Yeah, that's true. That's true. It, it it does make sense, and I I think we all assumed there was a good reason why they were doing it yeah. that way. But um, it is something that that the teams constantly kind of battle against. But it's it's the one that gives them pretty decent metrics, and a lot of those teams are using cycle time and then doing things like figuring out what their um, what their range generally for a small, medium, large story is, so that all they have to do is in, is estimate small, medium, large. Now, you know, you guys are and, talking about not doing estimates at all, but if they do have to estimate, they're at least not estimating in specific in, hours. Right? I, I, I like that uh, they talked about on the No Estimates podcast, uh, what are, affinity estimations? Yeah. Where you just right. pick one. Yeah, I, I thought if I'm going to have to estimate, Right, that's that's the one that I want to do. Well, and the key, um, but the, when you're collecting cycle time, is it per uh, step in the process, or are you just doing overall? It's it's overall for the okay. most part. I was thinking it would be it would, might be interesting to look at. Um, just this is kind of sidetracked, but um, the different sizes of those stories that have been affinity estimated. Uh, to look at how much time they spend in each step of the process. Like, does a bigger story spend more time in QA or less time mm. or the same amount? Should it have spent more time? And another thing would be interesting to put like dollar amounts to it. Like this story cost us this much to complete. Do we really think that it was worth that feature? Yeah. Just for hindsight. That's an interesting retrospective. I, I, yeah. I, anytime you can put money to it with, with a customer, well, I, it, and, it seems to be like a big thing in their face. That's the, it's exactly the kind of thing that, that I would want a team to figure out and, and experiment with that I'm, I would be afraid if we did standardized metrics that they just wouldn't. They could, even if you said you can, if, if, if everybody was happy with them gathering standardized metrics, would, would they do that? And maybe, maybe some teams still would. Maybe the kind of teams that would experiment would still do it, even if they had a standard metric. But or, or that, that would be my concern. But would, would they do it as much? Right. That would be my fear. So, so kind of back to the original seed here, and I guess I'm my my viewpoint is you know looking at large organizations where there's a perception, maybe it's from all the architects and project managers out there that see value in having some level of standardization that that would go out there and say, hey, if you wanted if you want to start an agile transformation, go get a tool, you know, and and actually the tool vendors that's why they sell tools and consulting and coaching and all those services, and go ahead and get all that up and running. Um, even to the point that sometimes they say you do a big bang where you say you wake up a little more and you're agile. But even before you do that, what what's your criticism of that, Amos? Because a lot of large businesses use that as an approach to facilitate scaling and agile transformation. And here we're saying don't do that. Just let people go figure it out. 
No, no, I've, I've said that I wish there was a some kind of starter toolkit. I think that uh, larger companies, when they get that, that what I would call a starter toolkit, Scrum, to me, is a starter stool, toolkit. The iterations <laughs> and, and like, fixed scope, it, to me, it's cycled waterfall, whatever that's called. Um, <clears throat> I think it's a good way to start. But too many companies, they get that package and they're like, this is the way it's done and that's it. And we, you can't change that. And I think that is the big problem is the way that even Scrum is sold is that it is the, the way that you should develop software. Not this is a way for you to start. And, and I, I think that it's too much, too. I want something smaller. Some very small packet. I, I talked with Craig extensively about this. And I think that you start with retros and you give the team the power to to make changes to the way that they are developing. And if you have to have somebody sit in and listen to the changes that they're making and okay it, that's fine as long as you don't put too many things in their way. And and I think that that is the Agile Starter Kit. Let's so, just go with that. So there's a webpage at uh, guide.agilealliance.org slash subway.html. And it's basically got all the Agile practices. Um, Listed on one page, and, and they're, they're on subway lines with different colored lines, and like, you know, Kanban teaches this, Lean teaches this, Extreme teaches this, and Scrum teaches this. And, you know, there's some overlap in those. But, you know, there's about 30 or 40 things on this screen, and, you know, I, I don't want to start with 40 Agile practices. Um, I want to start with, you know, three or four or five. So having a toolbox that tells me which of those to start with would be would be an awesome idea, I think. Um, I, I think, like like Agnes, I I think retrospectives is is what makes us agile. The the ability to to look back and change in the future. So, how how are you supposed to deal with change if you haven't been trying to make change? No, I agree. So what's funny is Amos, did you take the state of agile survey this year? I know you thoroughly enjoyed it last year. No, but no, you no, did no. not because what is unique? We're talking no. about retros here. And again, from our friends at version one who did that survey and we can talk about if they did the complex correlations, maybe they didn't, maybe they didn't this year, but they actually saw that retrospectives was up with Kanban was one of the practices that increased the most between 2012 and 2013. So what you guys are saying is spot on. Now, it still is not as popular as the daily stand-up, the iteration planning, or the unit testing, but the fourth is now retrospectives. Something to be said for that. Yeah, Apparently I, not. So, so Why is it number four? <laughs> I, because I think, to the credit of Scrum, I think the daily stand-up is a much easier ceremony to institutionalize and to simply oh, no. do. Oh, ceremony. Well... Uh, it becomes one, and that's the problem. Yeah, exactly. So, so well, what is it? Well, so, you know, so Amos, you're talking about Scrum. Scrum has rituals, as we know, and they're supposed to be, you know, you can't change them. One of them is the daily Scrum meeting or the stand-up. What's your issue with that? Because, hey, it gets people thinking. It promotes talking about, hey, I got a problem. We it, need to do it, something. It, I don't have a problem with the daily stand-up at all. If it still provides value. <clears throat> yes. I have a problem with this thing can't change. Like it's it, example for the audience, please. The only thing that can change is, is the ability to change. We we have we have fixed length iterations. I don't care that you can change that length. We have iterations that have fixed scope, fixed length. That is one thing that big companies get a hold of. They say, "Oh, I I really get to kind of do the same thing that we've always been doing. We just do it in smaller packages." And we don't have to make those changes and you can't change that. That's the way we work and that's the way it is. 
So what's your counter to that? <clears throat> I, I think you need a more pointing we, question. We, 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 <laughs> we need help because we've not been able to counter that very successfully on, in most I'm cases. <clears throat> yeah, it, it's, well, it's... So somewhere in the version one survey, I don't, I'm going through it, I lost the page. There's a discussion about how the key to having an agile transformation is having executive sponsorship. How that's one of the key elements to be successful in scale agile. Absolutely. So you're talking to me as an executive and you know I'm a you know I'm a PMI guy. You know, I want you know good old project management triangle. And so I like this idea of fixed scope, you know, I get fast feedback, I can even talk about it, I make it some metrics. And that standardization that Scrum provides sometimes helps sell. It helps people understand Agile as a foreign concept. What would you do to sell me when you're saying you don't agree with that, that need to be to change some of the elements that allows me as an executive to better manage risk? Why do you need to wait till next week for feedback? Can we get it today? Why does that provide more value? How do you know that provides more value than, than the other way? So Have it actually, I can def well, we're, we're a little, uh, I can defer to Nate here maybe, but if I'm, if I'm a C-level executive and I'm looking across my portfolio of, of IT, you know, I've got, you know, I might have operations, I might have development, I might have support, and all I hear is change, change, change. These are all centers of excellence, right, Ty? Of course they're centers <laughs> of excellence, yes. And we've got black belts and we get, yeah, all that stuff running around. But no, so again, help me, because this is, this is real life for a lot of people at the C-level. They hear this and they freak out because they're like, how do you manage all those changes? It's like, you know, and, the, and again, traditional C-level, they might have a command and control type background. So they want to be in control. They want to know what's going on. And, and that's really hard is to let go of that control. And I think when you talk about executive sponsorship, that's that's what that means is you <laughs> need to have their trust in your trusting employees. you and willing to give you that control. And if they're not, it may not ever really work. At, so, at your company. So I worked for a company, a local company. It's a large company. Uh, it's called Merits. They have a division, <laughs> they have a division <laughs> called Merits Performance Improvement Company. People hire this company to help them improve performance. We're trying to do that on our own, and why would the CEOs be fighting performance improvement? I, that seems crazy to me. What's, what's scary about change on that <laughs> level is that not only that it's out of your control, but that you're afraid that someone's going to change something that they don't understand and it's going to mess up someone else or mess up the process or mess up this carefully crafted, you know, structure that's been put together. There, there's right. also an assumption that's that that executive joke. really understands well, why. And well, it's not because I've been doing it for 20 years. Right, right. Not that they understand it or even so much as whoever set it up that way understood it. And I trust that they knew what they were doing, you know. But, uh, you know, for example... Sounds like a, software without tests. A development, <laughs> you know, a software development group can drive an IT, you know, uh, sysadmin shop crazy with all the changes that they're, that they're making. So if they're trying to deploy, you know, continuously or if they're, um, you know, if they're going and messing with the database constantly, you know, the, the database structure is no longer sacred. You're not talking to the... DBAs anymore. You're just going in there and making your own changes to the schema, or you're using some crazy NoSQL thing that no one's ever supported before, right? So um, that's right. That's the kind of stuff that, that can drive that IT shop crazy. And the only way to make that work is to actually have those people communicate with each other, you know, about those those changes. And are you trusting that all that's happening, or are you just kind of letting letting everybody do whatever they want? And it's you know, it's it's just 
complete completely uncontrolled chaos. So what if you could co-locate people from those teams? Like no, what that's, if, what that's if, what I'm if your agile team is made up of ADBA, some right. developers. I think the agile has an answer. Guy. I'm just not sure. Do these C level people trust that that those people now learning agile and getting freedom that they know how to do this the right way, or if they're just going to go crazy and start messing things up? No, I and and I I guess yes. At at some point, you know, I have a multi billion dollar business, and in a week, if you can make it tumble in a week, then yeah, I probably don't, I have a, I have a hard time wanting to give you that power. I, I think this leads into sort of what I see Tice trying to do all the time. We don't want to do agile, but how do we benefit from agile? You know, that, that's what I'm seeing Are here. You're saying Tice doesn't want to do agile. He just wants the benefits. No, no. <laughs> but the large enterprises that he talks about want the benefits of agile, but they really don't want to pay the price to get those benefits. Well, that's 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 what I usually see him trying to do is see these big companies that want to get the benefits without doing the work. I, I agree totally. And actually, the, the practical advice that I was going to say um, is we, we kind of we've danced around it tonight. We haven't got into it. It wasn't on the, the, the last responsible plan, but to talk about engineering practices and really one of the things that executive sponsorship for an agile transformation should make, make sure they're aware of is, you know, thanks to the agile marketing machine, there's a lot of awareness of the development activities. Like we're going to do, we're going to have the rituals, we're going to have a planning meeting, we're going to track this mysterious metric called velocity. Um, you know, we're going to do all that. But then what you don't realize is that starts to produce new product. You need to get feedback on that from your customers and your end users to actually improve it. And unless you've optimized your, you know, your release processes and however you do that, it's not going to go well. So I would advise executive sponsorships to say that, you know what, Ensure that you can do a release and then measure the cycle time to get that release actually out to production. And if it doesn't work where it's sustainable, you've got some work the, to do. The cheaper it is to get to production, the less risk there is getting it there, too. And, and especially if you have rollback procedures. That's what I would say is let's get it to production as fast as possible and always have a rollback procedure. Every time you deploy, you have to have the ability to go back. But a lot, but a lot of times, Amos, the, and again, the reason I say that for executives is again, if they're looking across the enterprise, they've got that big enterprise viewpoint. Is again, they say, okay, we're going to do our little agile pilot project, and we're going to, you know, develop, and we're going to have demos, and it's going to be awesome. And then they say, well, great, we got it done. Now we need to deploy it to production. Oh, we didn't do that already. Oh no, because it's a different architecture, or whatever. And they didn't have that support, and then you have this challenge. So this key thing is to say agile, especially for the for the C level, it's not just about development. It's actually about delivery of business capability. And unless you're truly supporting that end to end, then you're you're not aligned for success. Yeah, I think the only way to really talk to an executive about that outside of trying to talk to them about trust is to put it in. Is there a way to put it down in dollars? This is what it costs for you to get from point A to point B. In a well, waterfallish or, fashion, or talk, or talk fashion. about business value. If there's a right. way to quantify the business value in dollars, to say now that you've deployed this, this made you this many dollars, or even added. better. And if you can do that, as as Jason said, I think he's right. I've I've seen too many agile pilot projects that just went nowhere, you know, because they they hit a stone wall once it got to deployment. And well, that's because they didn't hire a separate deployment team that would get it to production with the reams of documentation. That yeah, right. So, or they or they didn't ask the IT people to join the team from day one and right. and be a part of the effort. You know, that that's something key that I think a lot of these scrum teams miss 
when they think about a whole team, those are, that's the whole part of the team that gets left out. Especially when you have the, the security guy up there at the top. It's like, whoa, you just handed this to me? No. Right. Like, I need to know what's going on here. Uh, And at a lot of big companies, healthcare companies, they're very security minded. And I've seen a lot of projects stop on that deployment because of security. Right. So, so I, this sounds to me like there's a bit of a marketing problem with Agile that it's not customer focused. And most of the Agile I've seen is customer focused, you know, the, especially if you're doing user acceptance tests, which is one of my favorite practices. Um, By customer, do you mean the C-level executives or the end users of the product? The, the end users, the ones that are paying the bills in, in, the, in the end. Well, and you, you know, usually they're part of it, but the problem is that um, they get to see it and see demos and play around with it when it's not even in production yet. And right. everybody's fooled up until the point where it actually needs that, to go. Well, that's why I just want to minimize the time in production. Yeah. As soon as you have a feature done, let's just push it to production. And, and I know that not everywhere you can do that. I've, I've been in situations where, I'm sorry, we've got hardware pieces or whatever, and you can't just push to production tomorrow. But usually you can't because uh, we never thought about not doing it that way. But maybe right. that's the problem you should be solving right. first. Is how do I get this into production? Right. And then let's work on feature two. Right. Yep. So, so Amy, so let me ask a question then. How how do you and and you've done a variety of projects and things in your career. How do you go about figuring that out? So you know you're trying to get it. You're trying to get your feature out the door. How do you figure out the road to production and work through all the challenges so you can optimize that? So I start with I finish the first feature that's going to go out like. Just the very first feature is where you need to start doing that. So you have a piece of code to get to production. If you're doing, I don't know, a website. That, that works on a new if, app. Well, if, yeah. Well, on, on an old app, the very first, yeah. well, the very, if you already have an app, that is your first feature is let's, let's get that all the way to deployment. Now, if you don't have an app, get something that is possibly deployable in any way. I don't care if it's hello world and, then let's get that all the way through the deployment process so that we have exactly how it's all done by hand, and then we start to try to automate it if we can. All right, some environments, you can't automate it because the computer system you develop on is not allowed to be connected to the network that you don't, so you got to put it on a CD and hand carry it. I've been in those situations, too. Well, and the other challenge there, again, is defining, and this is where from doing an, if you're doing an enterprise transformation, it's tough because who defines the success for what is production? You might have a project sponsor that might say, okay, you know, if you're deploying to a small environment or maybe maybe if you're doing a consulting project or you're building on the outside, maybe you can deploy to, you know, a, a site that you provide as a consultant, you know, to get preliminary feedback. But somewhere else in the organization, that may not be acceptable to other stakeholders. How you get to the source of truth for what that means is just, I would call that a risk and there, it's going to be different in every enterprise out there. But if you can show that you have a way to back that out, that change. Now, like we, we already said hardware, maybe you can't back it out very well. But if you've already shown that I can deploy and back it out with what you currently have in production, we are not changing anything. We're just getting it deployed. If I can go all the way forward and deploy and all the way back to an older version, can we, can we eliminate that, that fear that, that the, the one group has and once we can eliminate that fear or reduce that fear, then we can reduce the risk by making smaller changes that go out to production because we've streamlined everything to, to production already. And those smaller changes have less risk, less people are likely to see them. And if there is a failure, 
and a end customer sees it and reports it, we can roll it back immediately. The, the interesting thing about deployment and risk is the more you do it, the smaller, the more often, the less risk there is. And, and, the and less that's what you're trying to yeah, reduce, no, and yet yeah. you're doing it the complete opposite way. No, no I mean, it's funny. You're, you're, you're we, afraid we, that something's going to break. We handle risk by waiting. Well, or by it, increasing you know, it. Going back yeah. to the last episode, actually, yeah, it was the last episode where we talked about our overloaded yoga positions, and I was trying to make analogies between... Man, I wish I was here. Well, between, <laughs> no, yoga, if you've not done it, it is, a, it is an iterative practice. And the way that you get better at it is you practice and you, you work through the hard things. You know, I learned to balance. Same thing. Deployments are hard to do, especially in a large environment. Get good at doing them and then actually work to automate them and reduce risk. So let's do that first thing. That's, that's what I think the, the step is, is yeah. to do that and first. The, and the problem that I've seen in multiple environments is that typically, again, you start your agile transformation, you do a pilot project. Well, typically, a lot of times they focus on methodology, so they don't, there isn't enough focus on engineering discipline. And then even if you focus on engineering discipline, you focus on the development-centric engineering disciplines like TDD, right. and you don't think about, okay, well, we can do build, and we can build to the demo server that runs land local to our dev environment. It never then leaves the building until we burn a CD, and then we walk it out. And, and that I'll, doesn't work. A lot of that that I've seen, the pushback, is um, that's not my job, or I'm going to push somebody out of having a job because of this. So then you get a lot of pushback from certain areas of the organization, because if this guy can just deploy and I was the guy that was taking everybody's code and deploying it before, now what do I do? So then we go back to, we need to include those people on the actual. I, I think there's just so many people involved in a deployment in a large organization that it's just becomes inertia at that point. Well, that, and the, the other thing to throw out there is again, practical advice and actually things I think, a technical topic, yay! Um, let's talk about feature toggles and how. If, if you guys are familiar with yep. feature toggles, okay. Well, mm -hmm. you, you might want to say it though for the. Well, so I'm gonna a feature toggle is this idea of, you know, you you implement code incrementally or at the feature level, and you can turn it on and off by configuration. So you can release code to production, and no one can get to it, or maybe there's a way to enable it for a few select users. But this is a great strategy by which you can reduce deployment risk because you can release features out there. They're not going to operate unless you give a, sp a specific person permission to do so. And as a result, it's like we're releasing software, but it may or may not have an impact. There are good examples of that out there. There's GitHub. They released production, but they have a um, multiple times a an day, an employee switch that only employees see it at first. Uh, Twitter, Twitter does things like that. They, they do a certain percentage of the people, um, uh, Facebook, um, it's got so many features. I don't yeah. know how they keep track well, I think of the, it. I think <laughs> Facebook's an interesting one to talk about because I mean, the story that I heard once, and if anyone knows more details, they can speak up or the audience can comment, you know, on the, on the website, this So fa Facebook like had all their features for last year implemented on the first of the year. And then they just <laughs> incrementally turned them on throughout the year. So I guess if you're Facebook and you have a lot of money, you can do that from the business context. Yeah. But I don't think most people have that luxury. Well, and then they can advertise for it, too, because it's already written. It's already done. And somebody's using it. No, and no they risk say, of missing your hey, deadline. We're going to turn it on on July 31st so we can we can push that. So just as somebody who hasn't done a whole lot of development the last few years, how big of a deal is it to do these feature toggles? Is it easy? Is it it seems hard to me. It, it can be. Uh, and then I think the big the big thing that I've seen as a problem is people will put in feature toggles and then 
not really take them out. They just turn them on for everybody, but they leave all the code in there that, right. that can toggle how, it on and off. How do you keep your code from turning into a big nested if? Right, I, and, and I, I think uh, you can use a DSL in some languages think, that makes it look pretty easy or configure it. To me, the tricky part is until you turn it on, it's sitting there and you haven't smoke tested it. That, yeah, that's right. the problem I usually see. Right, and if it sits there not turned on long enough and other features go in around it, right. it could easily Right, break and then it. you flip it on and now it's broken. Right, yeah. I mean, it's yeah. that... It, you know, it's, that's the, the, one of the things that Agile kind of freed me from in my past pre-Agile career was this, you know, trying to think of all the things you might want your application to do at some point in the future and put hooks in for them so that it would be ready and easy to do. And then, of course, you never did them. And then you're constantly coding around all those hooks. And why did we design the framework? Well, we thought we might make it, you know, um, we might internationalize it at some point. And so... We put in all these hooks so that you huh. can put in different languages, you know, and and you're just constantly fighting with that. It seems like the same thing could happen with I, the feature I toggles. Turning on a feature to- a feature toggle is another feature in itself. Yeah, that's true. And, and so when that feature is not being used, you should be pulling it out. I, I find feature toggles don't work unless you have a really big uh, site that a bit, really big user base that you can turn it on for a small percentage that will actually be using it and making sure that it doesn't break because otherwise it's going to sit there as dead code for quite a while. Well, and this is also a really kind of a, call it a test profile scenario where, you know, you should have a test profile that runs all of your feature toggles enabled and see if there's any, you know, to detect those interactions between, you know, a feature that might be disabled in your staging environment or your prod environment to detect, you know, is it going to work as as soon as possible. Again, not, it's not a feature toggles, not a hard or a hard problem to solve. Sometimes I've seen, and I know a couple of them out there. I've seen some feature toggle frameworks. You know, some architects got together and said, "Ooh, we can figure this out." Oh, um, yes, I know. Were you involved in that? Type? No, actually, I wasn't because I'm with. I, again, I think that a feature toggle is temporary code, and ideally, so if you work it through the full life cycle, hmm. you have a feature. You deploy the toggle harness, whatever you have. You use it to facilitate your testing, your limited release. It goes public. Everyone has access. Then, in my opinion, if you need to take that feature away, that's a new feature toggle. And so you then you can basically selectively disable the feature until it's gone. And so the change cycle works in reverse with a feature toggle to start selectively turning something off. But when do you pull out the code that toggles either way? Right. That's, that's what Nate was talking about, and that's been my problem is the code. The the projects that I've seen that have used it have been big enough that they have hundreds of these, and then they just get left in there. And the fun thing is, is whenever they put the feature toggle in the database, so <laughs> then it does fifteen thousand database queries on every page that you bring up <laughs> because it's got to check all of the feature toggles. <laughs> so we've <laughs> seen something similar to that. So well, I've seen this. I've seen this in well, really like Web two You know, high volume web code or high volume websites as well as in mobile where literally especially in mobile when you're on a small screen there is an idea that this mobile application can only have so many features or it gets too complicated so i've actually seen and people i've seen people use LeanKit for this they actually have like a feature board where you know they have a whip limit for these are the features in production and really if you want to add a feature <laughs> you have to take one out i'm not I sure mean, if i like that or hate that well, i think it's a little of each it makes you really value which features you need Take all features that are coming in and put them into buckets. You have Game Changer, which is the feature that makes your 
application better than anybody else's? Why would somebody want to use yours over everybody else? And you hang on to that that game changer. You should really only have one or two game changers at, at any point in time until like your product is out being used so that you can concentrate on moving forward. Then you have showstoppers, which are the features that you have to have. Like if I have accounting software, it's got to be able to add numbers together. That's a showstopper. If I can't see a profit and loss statement, that's a showstopper. And then you have noise. All the other features, if you can't put it in one of those two buckets, are throwaway. Don't even do it. Yeah. Well, to go full circle, to me, well, I, I don't know if, I guess that, to me, when I think, and I hear of people using affinity estimation, they typically do that to, you know, a rough order size. But to me, that's how you really prioritize a backlog to say, this is the stuff we have to do. And really, that's the type of estimation and really story discussion you should have is really not to say, you know, what's the arbitrary point value of the story, whatever, you know, what's the business impact of this, of the story and really use that to decide how things are prioritized. So, so when a customer says, I want marquee text at the top of the homepage, you say that's going to take three weeks. <laughs> <laughs> that would really depend on if you're is that using really what you're talking about. You, like, well, I don't, you, you were saying I, there you needs to prioritize be, your backlog. Well, to me, I like I like what you're saying is a way of you have. I'll use my favorite word that I know my colleague Nate here really enjoys. You have a taxonomy for what your features are. So you've got some that are, and and by that nature, you can have a team with its customer can have a working agreement to say that we give priority to the to the stories that align to this category in the taxonomy. Can, can we call them? Tags just so I can feel more web 2.0 ish. <laughs> so, no. so, the, so the key is if you, if you can find a good way to define a measure for business value, whether it's, you know, dollars or in the old, uh, in the Kanban game simulation where, you know, number of subscribers, I always thought that would be awesome if you could really do that. Yeah, I wish I could. I know if you could find some way to quantify business value and it's hard to do, but if there's a way to do it, that would be a way to get them to not put marquee text on the top. If you could say, well, let's look at all these, the business value that we've got in the backlog versus changing this to have marquee text. How, how do we quantify the value of that? It's probably not very high. In fact, it might be negative. <laughs> <laughs> Most likely. Like estimating. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> so we've kind of been all over the place here. We started talking about an enterprise dashboard for metrics. We've talked about executive level coaching for an agile transformation. And we've even ended with some technical practices um, to really talk about feature toggles and how you can use feature toggles to, you know, better manage risk and prioritize a backlog. So as we have kind of been all over the place, any closing thoughts on that, Amos? I mean, words of wisdom. Uh, I don't usually have a lot of wisdom. Here comes a show title right here. <laughs> Um, <laughs> no, I, I, there's, there's not uh, a whole lot that I can pull off the top of my head right now. I'm too, too concentrated on the fact that I have to leave here in four minutes to make it to the St. Louis Ruby group tonight, which will be awesome. So I, I hope so. All right, Craig, any, we'll do picks in a minute. Any, any closing comments? No, I just, I just love the idea of having a toolbox that, that teams can start with though. I think please, of all the things we talked about, that's a great idea. Please rate us on iTunes. <laughs> that's my closing thought. <laughs> Shameless plug. <laughs> Show title. <laughs> Perfect. Uh, yeah, we did talk about a lot of different things. And I, and I think what, what I would kind of sum it up as, you know, look, look for how you can provide value to overall value, real value the business as quickly as possible. And if you're not really looking at that, then you're not doing everything Agile can do. 
Yeah, and if and if I go, I'll have the last word here on the topic. So I think my my simple advice, because we did talk a lot about the C level today and executive sponsorship, you don't have to be at the C level to influence the C level. So really, you know, regardless of your role in the project, ask questions about success. Ask questions about how to get a release out the door to get feedback from real end users, and then use that to help guide and even you know advise folks that you work with to ensure that you can have a successful transformation and understand that that comes through human connections and it doesn't come through evil enterprise dashboards and standardized metrics. It comes through talking and working through things together as a team. Now that Tice thought he had his last word, I will actually give what I was thinking. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, uh, No, you, you were talking about, you know, it's a people thing. So uh, I'm going to go back to the thing that Craig and I have said a million times is do retros have retros and allow teams to actually make change, small changes so that they can just try it out for a week or two. How much are you going to lose over a small change and let it grow organically? Just like good software is grown. Good teams are grown. Okay. Let's do picks. As we know, these are non-governed. You can have as many as you want. So who wants to go yeah. first? <laughs> All right. Let him, let him go. So he has to leave. Craig, Craig does too. Oh, He's Craig does too. Me. You both go. Okay. Same uh, time. Go. All right. So um, I put agileoutfitters.com just because somebody showed this to me the other day. Uh, it was kind of funny. They sell some shirts and stuff. Um, I'm going to say too bad. It's version one. It really, I, I almost bought a shirt and then saw that on the sleeve, it says version one. And so I'd have to cut the sleeves off of it. And although I do live in the middle of the country, uh, I don't live in that much of a Hoosierville. Yes, he does. <laughs> And uh, my second one uh, is when we were talking about marquee text is should I use a carousel.com? So <laughs> the, the carousels that you see on web pages that show three or four rotating things, usually marketing material. Uh, it's, it's pretty interesting. It's done as a carousel and it talks about what people normally see from actual so studies. So it doesn't just say no, it actually gives you reasons why. Oh, well, as a carousel. And then it talks about if you're frustrated that you haven't been able to read all this information because it keeps fading by, then maybe you should think about this. Um, but yeah, carousels are, are bad, okay? And that's it. I know. <laughs> oh, yeah. Nice. Oh, that should be my third pick. Uh, removing the words I know from your vocabulary. When you're pairing with people and you say I know a lot, even if you don't mean it maliciously, I've found myself when people say it to me is, well, I don't have to tell them because obviously they know everything and I don't even mean to get to that point. And it's not even a negative. They think they know everything. It's just uh, why I don't need to to take the time. And I don't want people to do that with me. So I'm trying to replace I know with okay or thank you. Thank you is a beautiful way. Can I say you told me that yesterday? Never thought about that. We're going to strap Amos down. We're going to make him read the human side of Agile, and then we will talk about it. Does it say not to use the word I know? Yes, it does. Yeah. I know it's it's a beautiful word. So did you independently discover that, Amos? I did independently discover that. So you could say you're beautiful instead of I know. (laughs) I love you, Amos. Uh, I don't remember what happened today. Something I was just talking to Craig about it, and then we were we were going to a mall, and he said something about well, not knowing if you had been here a lot before because he was trying to tell me where the bathroom was, and I said I know, and then I told him what I really should have said is thank you or or that he gave me directions to the bathroom or whenever he was explaining that um, 
he didn't know if I had been to this mall before. I should have said, oh, I can see that instead of I know. And I have to remove it from all of my vocabulary or it'll still happen. I know. (laughs) Jerk. Like, Craig, what you got? All right. uh, First, all mine are pretty serious. Um, The first is an article article called The Importance of Being Typed. And I think this is one of the most important articles that I've seen recently. Um, It talks about um, using types instead of just munging strings together for templates and such. And so it, it removes a lot of the possibilities of of uh, security issues with with inputs. Um, so uh, definitely take a look at that article. Uh, next pick is uh, a tool called KeyMap for MacBook or KeyRemap for MacBook. Um, so one of my complaints about my MacBook is the control key and the function key are in the wrong places. Um, this solves that problem. In fact, it's got a really good solution. The function key acts as a function key when you press it in certain circumstances and it's a control key in other circumstances, Ooh. which is really awesome. Um, you can also do some other things. Um, on a full-size keyboard, the function key is where the insert key would normally be, and I keep hitting shift insert to paste, and so I was able to fix that problem. Um, also, if you don't like caps lock, but you kind of wish it was there just once in a while, I've set it to map hitting both shift keys to turn caps lock on so you know that doesn't need a whole key um but it is nice to have every once in a while i don't so, ever wish it was there but i would be happy with that yeah that's a, that's a um, good compromise actually the next was pretty cool that you had to hit like command shift to turn it on and off so that would be ideal um smart steve jobs yeah that guy was a genius um so my third pick is postgres um the uh it, it has a lot of features that we that I see a lot of other uh, people using other databases for. Um, it's got full text search, so you could probably get rid of Elasticsearch. Um, it's got a key value store. It's got something called HStore, and it's got JSON support, so you could use it in place of Mongo. It's actually faster at that than Mongo right now. So uh, before you look at some specialized database, look at Postgres. It probably has the features you need. Okay, Nate, how about you? All right, I just have one. Um, and it's actually about a year old, but I just found it the other day and thought it was really pretty interesting. It's the uh, Valve, the company that makes Steam and lots of cool video games. Their employee handbook uh, describes how their company works, and the way it works is that there is no hierarchy. There's Gabe Newell, who is the owner, and the way they describe him is that he is uh, in that everyone in the company is not your boss. He is more not your boss than anyone else. <laughs> Um, so it's, it's very interesting how, how it works. It, uh, everyone works on what they think is important, what they want to work on. And if a project is ever, um, lacking for staff, that probably means that it should just be killed because people aren't interested in working on it. Um, it is completely self-governed. They have a very interesting way of deciding compensation increases since there are no managers to decide that. So it's basically a a stack ranking system in which everyone participates. Um, it is fascinating. So it's very short, easy to read, um, and thought provoking. So if you haven't read it, I would, I would recommend it. Nate, I just want to thank you for not putting out a game again. Cause one time you put out a browser game <laughs> and it wasted my life. Was, was that candy box? Cause I yes, played that yes, too. Was. And then I got angry I it. and I hacked candy box. JavaScript. So, so I like to add a pick. So candy box two is, yeah, out, candy now, box two is out. Oh, I hate you. <laughs> 
I just gave myself like 16 billion candies through the JavaScript. I just uh-huh. said it. Yeah, yeah, I did yeah. that after I got tired. Yeah. <laughs> and I'll go last. I have three picks. Um, trying to come in. Actually, that seems to be the average number today. So. Um, so version one, we made it like their t-shirts, Amos, but they did drop the, the seventh annual state of agile survey. No, I like their t-shirts, just not the, their name Oh, <laughs> on the side of my t-shirt. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, so they did drop, it came out, um, actually it's, it's just come out. So, um, I know that John and I want to have a, a big episode to talk all about all the wonderful details in the survey. Um, and there's some interesting things out there. So that will be coming on a future episode of this agile life. If you get a chance, go out, download the survey, maybe leaf through it. You'll be able to follow along as we talk about it. Are you recording that tonight? I We might be doing that. We've got to figure that out. So, um, Also, la- on our last episode, um, Dr. Lee McCauley, he plugged Tasty Cupcakes as a great resource for having great retrospectives. But another one that's out there now, which is really cool, if you, um, is a site. It's called the Retromat, but the URL, we'll put this in the show notes. It's plan4retrospectives.com with dashes. So plan dash for dash retrospectives.com. And when you hit the website, what it does is it gives you a randomly generated five stage plan for a retro that pre selects activities based upon the five stages. If you don't like what it gives you at random, you can toggle through activities for each phase. Um, it's a great facilitation uh, toolbox. So if you, like Craig mentioned tonight, you want to start doing more with retros. It's a great site that's out there. Um, really cool thing. And they're going to build a commercial product out of it. But for now, it's free. I like it already. Yeah, it's neat. And if and if, if you're if you're not familiar with all the different activities that are out there for each of the five phases, it effectively, you could say, provides a taxonomy of those. So and last but certainly not least, um, actually, I'm, oh, I'm, my God. <laughs> yes, I know. I'm. Um, if you've ever been to MIT for an Agile event sponsored by Agile New England, um, I'm heading up to the Deep Agile Conference. You, you mean the college? Yeah. I'm not sure whenever you start spilling out oh, MIT. No. So um, Deep Agile Conference is November 22nd and 23rd up in Cambridge. Um, really cool stuff talking about software quality this year. So I'll be there. Hopefully I'll have some great ideas to bring back, talk about them on future episodes of the podcast. But I believe this episode should drop on... Sunday, the 17th of November, 2013. So if you hear this, you'll have exactly four days to go, go to MIT and check out the conference. So we'll see how we do. Other than that, I want to thank my co-host for this evening. Um, Amos, where can people find out about you? Hey, Tice, uh, everybody can find me on my blog is dirtyinformation.com. And I'm found on Twitter and GitHub at adcron, A-D-K-R-O-N. Awesome. Craig, where you at? Uh, on GitHub, I'm Booch, B-O-O-C-H, not to be confused with Grady Booch. Uh, Twitter, Craig Buchek, C-R-A-I-G, B-U-C-H-E-K. He can't decide how to spell his name. <laughs> and my, my colleague, Nate. Uh, yes, I am on Twitter at uh, Nate Mackey, N-A-T-E-M-C-K-I-E. And I also occasionally post on Asynchrony's blog, blog.asynchrony.com. You're still not ready to put your GitHub name out there? Nope. <laughs> and last, last but certainly not least, I'm Jason Tice. I am in the process of fixing my web presence, but I am still occasionally on Twitter at Tice Thoughts. So we want to thank everyone for listening in tonight. And um, if you guys have any comments, please give us a review on iTunes if you like the podcast. We also um, have a website where you can post interactive comments at thisagilelife.com. But for now, everyone go out there and just keep living this agile life. <laughs> <laughs>